Exodus chapter 5, I hope you're hungry today, uh, because we've got a full plate. This has been a, a, this has been a weird week for me. Um, a hard week. And not because of any outward circumstance, but I, I think it's just a ton of different things all kind of converging. One thing is I am sick and tired of the political season. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> tired of the lies. Tired of the constant arguing and bickering. And it doesn't matter who your candidate is, you can't turn on the news anymore without people shouting at each other. And I'm just tired of it. And I'm kind of sick and tired of the way things are going in the world. And I'm tired of the arrogance of man. And I place myself right at the top of that list. I'm tired of the way we approach God. I'm tired of the fact that we think we have all the answers. I was watching TV last night, a show called Faith Under Fire. Lee Strobel does this now on PAX TV. It's a a very interesting show. And he had on there a couple of different guests. One was a, a Jewish rabbi and that was a, the head of a group that was basically anti-Jews for Jesus. And then he had one of the guys who was involved with Jews for Jesus. Now Jews for Jesus, if you don't know about them, are a, an organization of Jews who have been converted to Jesus. They've discovered Jesus as their true Mashiach, Messiah. They believe him to be the fulfillment of all of the Jewish prophecy, all of the promises God gave to the Hebrews. And so they are believers and Christians, and they are specifically going after Jews. And this Jewish rabbi who was anti-Jews for Jesus was just going off about I mean, his whole organization basically is to counteract what Jews for Jesus is doing. And to listen to this conversation and this argument kind of going back and forth from these two positions, it, it just it broke my heart. And all I could think of was what Paul says in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, I believe. I'll look it up and tell you later, but Paul says it. You've got to trust me on this. Um, that even today, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their face. And I just sat there listening to this non-Jew for Jesus, just arguing and arguing and arguing, saying this is ridiculous. Christians and Jews have nothing in common. It's not even the same God. That's a lie. And it broke my heart. And I'm watching that, and of course I flipped to the news, and, and all the debate is back and forth about the election. And I just thought, God, we need to repent. We need to, as a, as a people, repent. And recognize that we are so small by comparison to who you are. I don't know how to convey this anymore. We're going to go through quite a few scriptures this morning. Some of it will be hard. I think about the first three-fourths of this. It's a hard reckoning looking at ourselves and at the world in which we live. And a a willingness, I guess it is, to be honest with ourselves. To say we're not as clean and good as we may think we are. And I want you to hang with me through this. I believe the Lord wants us to hear these things. There are several verses, several scriptures we're going to look at beginning in Exodus chapter 5. And let's start there right now. Beginning in verse 1. Afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said... Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let 
Israel go. Moses at this time is called. He's gifted. The reluctant deliverer is now on his way. And in chapters 5 through 12, we will watch, we will witness in these studies that we're going to be going into, the great contest. The great contest, it will unfold, but it's not between God and Pharaoh, not even between God and the people of Egypt. No, the great contest is between God and the gods of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, we've read this before. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This is what God has to say, by the way, to the gods of this world, both Egypt in that day and today. Isaiah 41, 24, Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. From the mouth of God himself, anyone who chooses anything other, any God other than him, it is an abomination. And all other gods, or all other belief systems, or all other directions, not my words, but God's words, all others are of no account. And we cannot any longer be a church who sits back and says, hey, anybody can believe anything they want, it's cool, we'll just all kind of travel along and eventually get there. That's not the truth. The truth is Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. And as Christians, if we don't believe that, if we don't internalize that, if we don't accept that, people all around us are headed for hell. Because there is no other option. There's no choice. Michael Byrd, big in the Kabbalah movement. You may have heard of that. It's been made very popular by some of the great theologians of our time, Madonna, Demi Moore, among others. Michael Berg wrote a book called Becoming Like God, Kabbalah and Our Ultimate Destiny. And I went to his website last night just to see if truly what this book was about was what I feared it was about, and it is. This is from his own words. In fact, you can go to his website, and a little, little Michael Berg head pops up, and he's, he's speaking, and this is what he says exactly. Quote, Every single one of us was imbued with the power of the Creator. That means that literally we have within us the ability to do everything the Creator does. The Kabbalist teaches that as a rock is hewn from a mountain, so we have been taken from the soul of the Creator. Which means that everything the Creator is, everything that He has in His essence, we have in our essence. And I get this picture of Michael Berg and Eve standing by a tree. And the serpent saying, hey listen, if you eat from this tree, guess what? You won't die, but you will become like God. The deception of Satan in Genesis chapter 3 has run since the beginning of time to now, and it's still his game plan. It hasn't changed much. He still wants us to believe that we can become like God. And Genesis 3, 5a tells us, the serpent says, God knows that in the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open. You will be like God. This stuff should scare us. I first, by the way, heard about Michael Berg's book because Penelope called me when she was at Costco and said, I just saw this book here. I had to tell you about it. Becoming Like God. Stacked up among all the other books, many books at Costco that are probably not so good. What's interesting is right on that same row of books, you've got everything from the Da Vinci Code, which is a massive deception, to Becoming Like God, all the way to the Holy Bible on the same table. And again, I look at all this and it makes me sick. And it's a weight. It's been all this week a weight on my heart. 
Well, God has some things to share with us this morning, and I hope that we can hear. Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's my prayer first, Lord, that you would accept our repentance. God, we need forgiveness. We as believers, most of us in this room, Lord, we have taken a watered-down approach for much of our lives. We have tried to be tolerant at times when your word is not tolerant. We have sought, Lord, to be comforting at times when your word is not comforting. Lord, you have told us very clearly the time of comfort is to come and will come. And truly that if we believe in you and lean on you and trust you, we can have a comfort, a peace that goes beyond any understanding in this world, even if it's hard. But Father, we just need to be forgiven for undermining the power and the truth of your word. Lord, forgive us for deception and for gossip and backbiting. Forgive us, Father, for hurting each other. Forgive us, Father, for thinking of ourselves more highly than our brothers and sisters, even here in this room. And Father, as we approach your words this morning, help us to accept responsibility for who we are and our great need for you. Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. May these words impact our hearts as they come from yours, Father. Again, your words are not mine. I pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 5, verse 1, again afterward, Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord? That's the right question. But it's the wrong heart. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is this God you speak of? Pharaoh had no interest in the true answer. He didn't care to know who the Lord was. Because that would require something of him that he did not want to give. Pharaoh did not want to give obedience to this God of Moses, this God of Israel. And gang, this is the dodge of the world we live in today. Who is the Lord? It's a self-imposed ignorance of those whose actions say, Hey, as long as I don't know God, I don't have to obey God. Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? I don't know Him, so I'm not going to obey Him. And if we can keep God at arm's length from us, then we think, we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, I don't have to worry about all that Christian stuff. The commands, and, and the, the, I can live my way, my life, the way I want it to be lived. As long as I don't know God, I don't have to obey Him. But folks, in this case, ignorance is not bliss, it's damnable. According to the Bible, everyone... And don't miss this. Everyone has knowledge of the Lord. Flip over to Romans chapter 1. This is in the New Testament. Just keep going to the right until you get there. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 and verse 18. I want you to see these things, hear these things, and understand them. 
Verse 18, chapter 1 of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That word suppress there, it's actually a Greek sailor's word. It literally means to hold fast as in against a strong wind. You're out on a vessel and you're sailing. It's battening down the hatches. Because the wind is blowing and we've got to hold against the wind. But in this case, Paul is saying people hold against the wind of the truth. And the wind of truth, folks, is blowing. The reality is that in the world today and in the world of the last 6,000 years, man has tried to hold fast against the wind. To suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Even though man knows the truth. We know there is a God. And I don't care how many times people want to say, I don't believe there's a God. Yeah, but you know there's a God. I don't believe there's a God. I don't know why you have to impress this religion, this God on me. You know there's a God. You know it. Paul says as much. People who would suppress the truth. Verse 19 he goes on. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. And he goes on and says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And Paul is so bold to say there's no excuse for not believing in God. You know him. You know he exists. You know within your heart of hearts that God is real. And that he's true. And that all of this is not here by chance or by accident or by some random evolutionary design, but there is a God. You know it, Paul says. So we're without excuse. In verse 21 he goes on, For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The Egyptians had such. They had gods of snakes and frogs and a god of the Nile. And today we have gods like Mother Nature. Or some might prefer Gaia. I watch Fox News quite a bit. Some of you know that. And it bugs me that every time they go to show weather weather patterns, especially if it's rough weather, hurricanes, tornadoes, whatever, they always call it wicked weather. As if the weather was wicked. As if the weather had any thought to morality in and of itself. It doesn't. God is the controller of these things. Not Mother Nature. Not Gaia, as some of the New Agers would say. We have our gods in this world. Do you know in, in Moses' time... There were 3,000 plus gods in Egypt. Thousands upon thousands of temples. Millions of idols to four-footed creatures. And frogs. They had a frog god. How'd you like to bow down and worship before a toad? (laughs) And yet they did. And here Paul's describing this attitude of man exchanging the glory of God, incorruptible God, for corruptible man and birds. And four, you know, birds. Four-footed animals, crawling creatures. It describes so much of the world today. When we elevate animals and trees above newborn babies in our world. Some of you have heard this, that the, uh, there's a $500 fine for crushing an eagle's egg in our country. It's on the books. It's law. $500 fine if you crush an eagle's egg, but you can destroy a baby. Give that some thought. 
professing to be wise, he said, they became fools. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I don't have any problem, by the way, with the environment and with being good stewards of that which God has given us. But I'll tell you something, the environment is not the major issue in this election. I would place the issue of abortion far, far above it. The issue of morality, the issue of faith, the issue of prayer, the issue of, of a right of, of a person to come before God and recognize and worship their Creator. Yeah, we need to take care of the earth that God gave us, but we don't need to elevate it to the place of mankind, which is what's happened among so many who love to hug the trees. Flip in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to notice as you're flipping there that God, Paul says, gave them over. 2 Timothy chapter 3. God gave them over. In other words, He hardened their hearts. We talked about this Wednesday night that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And people have a, have a hard time with that. God hardens his heart. That doesn't seem fair. What about free will? Until so you recognize that Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times before God begins to harden his heart the last seven times. God only does what Pharaoh decides for himself. God only honors the direction that Pharaoh wanted to go anyway. And he does the same with humanity. He gives us over to the impurity. If that's what we want, if that's what we desire, God's, God's gift of free will is so huge to him that even if we choose to sin against him, he will say, alright, that's your choice, if that's what you want. But understand that if that's what you want, you will be given over to those things. You will live there. And you will deal there. And we need to go further here in this issue, this attitude of human defiance. Further into Pharaoh's statement where he says, Who is the Lord? Because Paul in first in Second Timothy three, beginning in verse one, he's going to give a chilling indictment to the church today. And we're now talking about the church, so listen up. 2 Timothy 3 But realize this That in the last days Difficult times will come For men will be lovers of self Lovers of money Boastful Arrogant Revilers Disobedient to parents Ungrateful Unholy Unloving Irreconcilable Malicious gossips Without control Brutal Haters of good Treacherous Reckless Conceited Lovers of pleasure Rather than lovers of God Holding To a form of godliness Although they have denied its power Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, and led on by various impulses. Verse 7, watch this. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses... Janice and Jambres would be a couple of the temple musicians, or magicians, sorry, magicians who Pharaoh called in to throw down their staff, and Moses' staff eats their staff up. But you had some guys in Egypt at the time who were able to perform some kind of, well, religious experience 
But just as they opposed Moses, so these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres' folly was also. Back to verse 7, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Seattle Times, October the 8th. And share this article with you. It's called Clerics Step Up Debate on Gay Rights. Local religious leaders on both sides of the gay marriage debate are stepping up their efforts to get their messages heard. More than 200 religious leaders of varying faiths, but predominantly Christian and Jewish, have formed Religious Coalition for Equality to advocate for same-sex marriage and civil rights. On Sunday, the group is holding its first event, a forum starting at 4 p.m. on faith and same-sex marriage, followed by an interfaith worship service at Seattle's Town Hall. The event is free and open to the public. Quote, the rights of gay couples... Someone needs to stand up for that from a religious point of view, said Stephen Jones, coordinating pastor of Seattle First Baptist Church and coalition co-chair. Opposition to gay marriage has come in large part from conservative Christian groups, Jones said, but we heard there were many, many clergy locally that were on the other side and we need to have our voice heard. The group also plans to hold a rally in Olympia on February 14th to urge the legislature to pass a gay civil rights bill and to overturn a state law that bans same-sex marriage and prohibits the recognition of such marriages from uh, being performed elsewhere. And we think, well, that's no big deal. That's in the news all the time. The whole gay marriage debate's going on. Yeah, but these are Christians who are saying from a Christian perspective, oh, we need to honor that. We need to be okay with that. That needs to be good. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. What we didn't read in Romans chapter 1, if you'll flip back there very quickly. Back to Romans 1. Is God's position on gay marriage. Let me just read what the Bible says, and I won't even comment on it. We'll just let the Father comment on it. Verse 26 of Romans 1. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now folks, he doesn't use the word homosexual there. Instead, he defines it as clearly and plainly as you possibly can. And I still don't understand how a Christian pastor can read this verse and stand up for gay rights. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Now gang, flip back to Exodus 5. If I've upset anyone yet, stay with me. (laughs) I don't share this to frighten or depress or upset or bother anybody. That's not my point. But I do share this so that we can be crystal clear about the answer to this question. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Is it any one of us here this morning? Boy, I hope not. Who is the Lord? 
As I said before, Pharaoh's question is the right question with the wrong motive because it comes from the place of rebellion. A couple of things to jot down if you're a note taker. Number one, rebellion suppresses the truth. Rebellion suppresses the truth. Gang, listen, and listen carefully to this. Sin does not keep us from God. Rebellion does. Sin does not keep us from God. Rebellion does. Oh, so you're saying that God can abide sin? Absolutely not. But God, through Jesus, has paved the way to cover our sin, to forgive our sin, to take our sin away. So sin in and of itself is not what keeps us from God. God has a plan to remove that. What keeps us from God is the rebellious heart of man, which is at the root of sin. Sin grows out of rebellion. Sin is our active choice to rebel against a holy God who has made a way for us to come to Him and have our sins washed. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 tells us, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. And I love the, the passion of God here and the gentleness in the heart. Come, let's, let's reason together. Let's make some sense of this together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But, he says, if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Your sin is not a problem, God says. I can take care of that. Yeah, our sin leads to an ugly, brutal death on the cross. But because of that death, we have forgiveness. The problem is rebellion. Rebellion suppresses the truth. Who is the Lord, Pharaoh says, that I should obey him? Pharaoh was a rebel without a clue. And rebellion is the human problem. And it may be outright and hard-hearted like Pharaoh's. I mean, you may wonder why your efforts sometimes to reach a non-Christian person fall flat. Why they don't work. It's not because you're not saying the right thing. It's not because you're not prayerful enough. It's because man has choice and man rebels. And it's at the root of our hearts. It's not that people can't believe. It's that they don't want to believe. The evidence is clear. It may be hard-hearted and outright rebellion like Pharaoh, but folks, and listen to this, this is where it affects us. It may be as innocuous as not doing anything at all, like Moses. Like Moses. Yeah, like Moses. The second thing to jot down, rebellion stalls obedience. It doesn't just suppress the truth, but it stalls obedience. If you look back at chapter 4... In a very confusing section of Scripture, it tells us in verse 24, now Moses, he's on his way, he's heading to, to the promised land, not the promised land, from the promised land, or from Midian, back to Egypt, and he's going to lead the people to the promised land. And as he's on his way, listen to what happens, verse 24, it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. His deliverer. This is the guy he chose, and now God's going to kill him. And this verse, among others, is why people say, well, the Old Testament God was just harsh and unyielding and, and you know, different than the New Testament God. No, same God. Same God. They came about at the lodging place in the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. She circumcised him. A little bad for the son. That must have been a shocking experience. Here comes mom with a knife. What are you doing, mom? Get away from me. And she threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me, so God let him alone. 
<laughs> That's so weird. God is now taking Moses. He's in the process of killing him. And Zipporah goes, i got to stop this. What do I do? I know. I'll, I'll cut off my son's foreskin. And she does so and runs and throws it at his feet. And God says, okay, I'll let you off the hook. What's the deal here? Gang, the deal is that ever since Moses' own sons were born, he had never circumcised them. Now you may think, well, so what? So what? That was the only covenant at that point that God had with the Hebrew people. That was it. This is my covenant with you, God says, that you will circumcise every male on the eighth day. And Moses didn't do it. Why not? Well, he was in Midian. He was married to a Midianite woman. She wasn't bound by that. And I get the feeling because of Zipporah's attitude... You're the bridegroom of blood, she says. I get the feeling that maybe she just didn't want it to happen. Maybe even the eighth day come of Gershom's little life. And Moses said, okay, honey, we got the circumcision thing. And she says, not in my house. (laughs) You're not going to touch my son. For whatever reason, Moses doesn't do anything at all. And it almost cost him his life. Why is that story in here? I believe personally because this was a turning point for Moses in his understanding of God. It didn't happen when he was a baby put in a little basket and sent out on the, on the Nile and had his life saved then. It didn't even happen at the burning bush. When he argued with God and finally accepted his place as deliverer, even then, even when he took off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground, he still didn't quite grasp the seriousness of coming into the presence, into the hands of a holy God. But I'll tell you what, he understood it then. When God almost took his life, he knew, God's not messing around here. He is serious. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 30 tells us, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And the Hebrew writer says, and please hear this verse, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And we sing, Jesus loves me. And we get real soft and fluffy and, and gushy in church. And we go, I just felt so good this morning. It was so warm. It was so loving. And I just went out of it just feeling good. And we miss that we fell into the hands of a living God. An awesome God. A creator God. And some of you are looking at me right now like, Rick, you're getting a little heavy. It's a little judgmental. I don't like talking about God's vengeance and His judgment. I like mercy. I like grace. This is where I'm comfortable. Gang, we can't get to comfort zone until we have gone through the fire and understand who God is. And it is not until we understand who God is that we understand the depth of His comfort and love for us. Moses, I believe at this point, understands that you don't sidestep the holiness of God. You don't merrily skip past His commands. You don't sashay your way into heaven. That's not how it works. Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Now gang, if rebellion suppresses the truth and stalls obedience, and I have a rebellious heart, what hope do I have? Pharaoh arrogantly asks the question, Who is the Lord? And God answers his question. But he does it by speaking to the heart of Israel. And here's the good news. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Now at this point in the message, we could just start to get ready to stop. This is where it gets good. So really dial in here. Focus in. Exodus 6, 6. 
Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh says, and God says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And gang, I want you to see this. You've got to understand how God defines himself here. In the face of our rebellion, God defines himself as the God who brings redemption. Oh, redemption again. We've heard that word a few times recently. I told you, you'd hear a lot about redemption in the book of Exodus. That's the point. That's the focus. That's the direction God will take us. And honestly, if a Sunday or a Wednesday goes by and you don't hear the word redemption, we've missed it because that's what this book is about. Rebellion suppresses the truth. Rebellion solves obedience, but redemption squashes rebellion. And that's good news. God makes it clear that He is the Lord and by His hand Israel will be redeemed and by extension anyone who believes. And that's why Israel is so important. Because as it goes with Israel, so it will go with us. Redemption squashes rebellion. I want you to see this quickly. There are seven I wills right here that God lays out for Israel. Seven I wills. He says, I am the Lord. And number one, I will bring you out from under your burdens. Israel bore a heavy weight. In fact, after Moses appeals to Pharaoh to let God's people go to worship in the wilderness, Pharaoh increases their burdens. The weight gets heavier on them, which often happens when a person is just about to come to the Lord. If you're talking with someone and trying to invite them to Jesus, it's at that time when the weight of sin begins to get even heavier, more difficult. When they begin to think in their heads, I can't change. I can't get out of this. I'm stuck here. But redemption, God says, I will bring you out from under your burdens. Let me ask you, when was the last time you felt the weight of the burden of sin? Are you feeling the weight of some unconfessed sin in your life right now? Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will, God says, bring you out from under your burdens. Number two, I will deliver you from your bondage. And Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, my flesh is serving the law of sin. But therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I will deliver you, deliver you from your bondage. Number three, he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. In the same way that God rolled up his sleeves and redeemed Israel from Egypt, he bared his arm a second time. Listen, there's a question that we can ask here, and that is, who is the outstretched arm? 
Because the outstretched arm is not just a metaphor, it's not just a symbol, it is a person. Listen to this, Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And here the arm of the Lord is now described, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Listen, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Jesus is the outstretched arm of the Lord. And the rest of Isaiah 53, by the way, goes on to describe the arm of the Lord who will roll up his sleeve and reach out and save. And that's Jesus. And the best part of that little argument last night when I was watching Faith Under Fire between the anti-Jew for Jesus and the Jew for Jesus was when the Jew for Jesus opened up Isaiah 53 and said, Who is this talking about? He's going into the prophets. This rabbi was. He's quoting Ezekiel. He's quoting all over the place. And this guy quoted Isaiah 53 and said, Who is this? Who is this outstretched arm of the Lord? It is Jesus. Always fulfilled in him. Number four, he says, I will take you, God says, for my people. And from Abraham through Joseph, through the terrible struggle in Egypt, all the way to Moses, God developed a people, his people. And listen to this, in an earthly sense, there is no people on the face of the earth with a greater heritage than Israel. No one with a greater heritage. For no other people on the face of the planet in history had a God reach out and call them His people. But in an eternal sense, we have been given, I believe, an even greater heritage in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.10 tells us, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Number five, God says, I will be your God. In the face of all the pathetic, powerless, lifeless gods of Egypt, God tells Israel, I will be your God. You don't have to bow to the frog anymore. You don't have to worship the snake. You don't have to hope that the Nile will be there when you need it and will not overflow during bad seasons. I am the Lord. I will be your God. And today as then, people aspire to something higher. This heart of rebellion is very dangerous, folks, because in our world we aspire to something higher. Naturally, we are looking for more than ourselves. And if we don't find it in God, we're going to find it in all manner of strange and bizarre places. So how do we aspire to something higher? Listen to what Jesus said. Luke chapter 11, verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It looks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. How is that? Because you know how Jonah was swallowed by the, the whale three days and then came back to life as it were so Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three days and come back to life the sign of Jonah but Jesus goes on he says the queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold and behold Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is our greater than. And listen, as you talk to people who do not believe in Jesus, who aren't sure who God really is, who have a knowledge of God but not a faith in God, will you help them to see that Jesus is greater than? 
greater than our greatest hopes, greater than our dreams, greater than anything we can do for ourselves, and greater than all the pathetic gods of this age. Jesus is our greater than, and He says, I will be your God. Number six, God says, I will bring you to the land. I'll bring you to the land. I'm going to get you out of Egypt and I'm going to bring you to Canaan's land. The land God promised to Abraham. Now something's interesting here. and Just watch this for a second. Everybody still with me? We okay? You're a little tired, a little sleepy? Okay, if you've been taking a nap, come on back right now. You need to hear this. I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He says, I'll bring you to the land first and I'll give it to you for a possession. He's doing two things here. We need to grasp something. There's a lot of old hymns that teach bad theology. One of them is, to Canaan's land I'm on my way where the soul never dies. I'm not headed to Canaan's land to live where the soul never dies. Canaan is not a picture of heaven. You understand that? Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Why not? Because when the Israelites go back into Canaan's land, great as it was, there were still wars to wage and battles to fight. They still would struggle to keep what was there. And now, even though they live in quote-unquote Canaan's land, even though Israel is in the promised land, is this a comfortable picture of heaven? With the wars and the fights and the suicide bombings? Is that what heaven looks like? Boy, I hope not. Canaan's land is not a picture of heaven. And God says, I'm going to bring you back to the land. Good, that's good. And folks, in the same way, God has brought us spiritually into the kingdom, but is not yet the kingdom that Jesus prayed would come. We are not in the kingdom right now. We are in a shadow of the kingdom. If you're in Christ, you are part of His kingdom, and His kingdom is growing and spreading out. But this is not the kingdom. I was talking with my folks just last week about this very issue. We're talking about how rampant Satan is in the world today. And there are those who believe and those who teach, and maybe you've heard this before, that right now this is the kingdom age. This is the generic form of the millennium. That thousand year reign of Jesus that was talked about in Revelation. We're kind of in that right now. It's metaphorical, it's allegorical. Really, well in that metaphorical, allegorical, spiritualized view of the thousand year reign of Christ, it also says that Satan will be bound in chains in a pit during that time. Anybody believe right now that Satan is bound? Not in this election season. (laughs) Until Jesus returns, folks, in the kingdom, in Canaan's land, there are still wars to wage and battles to fight. Don't go to sleep yet. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done so to stand firm. But listen, the inheritance is coming. I'll bring you to the land, but then I'm going to give you the land. Number seven, I will give you the land as an inheritance. God redeemed Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land just as he said he would but that was not the fulfillment of eternal inheritance that day is coming Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 tells us Jesus will Jesus will tangibly in person set foot on the Mount of Olives it's not some vague oh, you know we'll just kind of go there and the Mount of Olives is just a picture of heaven no Zechariah 14.4 He will set foot on the Mount of Olives and that setting down will be so awesome it will split the Mount of Olives. 
He will be back and He will rule and reign in the promised land and the Jews finally at that point will recognize who He is, weep and mourn over the fact that they have missed the Messiah for 2,000 years and when they do, then the eternal kingdom for the Jews will be set up. Then they will receive the inheritance with the Messiah as their king. Then it will all come together. And that's wonderful news for the Jew, but what about me? What about us? What's our inheritance? 1 Thessalonians 4.17 We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, that is those who died in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. Our inheritance, folks, begins at that time when the church is caught up. Raptured. But after a seven year honeymoon in heaven, we return with Jesus where we, Revelation 20 verse 6 tells us, will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then after that, it doesn't stop. It just keeps getting better and better. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us that God will do a whole new thing. A new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, and we will always, always, always be with the Lord. Is that in great, a great inheritance or what? This is what we look forward to. This is the inheritance that has been promised that I am longing for. And by the way, if you don't understand these things, we have Revelation available on CD and teaching. Pick it up and check it out. God comes back a chapter later after Moses or Pharaoh asked this rebellious, brazen question, Who is the Lord? He comes back and he says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. But he doesn't just leave us hanging on, okay, what does that mean? He defines himself for us. He says, I will. I will. I will. This is what I do. This is who I am. I will redeem you with a mighty, outstretched arm. And listen, a promise, folks, is only as good as the person who gives it. And so when God gives these promises, He defines Himself with these promises as the Redeemer. I am the Lord, He says, and I will bring you out. I could go on for another hour. I'm not going to. We'll stop here. I don't know sometimes why God wants us to hear what He wants us to hear. And I don't know why sometimes He wants us to see what He wants us to see. But I see such a dramatic contrast in our world between rebellion and redemption. And really what it comes down to is which do you choose? Do you want to live in a life of rebellion? Whether it's overt like Pharaoh's or even covert like Moses was for a time. Do you actively just want to do your thing? Or do you want to come into the land of redemption? Which God promises comes with obedience to Him. That's the question we've got to deal with and answer and live out.